This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'd love to write a book called Gregory of Nazianzus and Augustine of Hippo, A Theological Comparison. So that way I could show more in terms of these two saints that are paradigmatic for their respective Greek and Latin traditions, how there is so much that can be compared and that then we can be enriched by this. So there are four steps to this evening's lecture. The first one is parallel lives in Christ. The second, Christ in a life of complete conversion and deification. Three, Christ in the scriptures and for Christ in ministerial service. We begin with step one, parallel lives in Christ. Parallel lives is the name of a work by Plutarch who died sometime after AD 119. He wrote in Greek and was in the early Roman Empire. And in parallel lives, he arranges biographies of Greeks and Romans. Okay, so some examples of these would be the respective founders, uh, according to mythology, of Athens and Rome, so Theseus and Romulus, uh, Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, so in terms of new political movements within, within these uh, Greek and Roman spheres, and in terms of Greek and Roman oratory, Demosthenes and Cicero. So Plutarch then was setting these up uh, as a Greek, writing in the early Roman Empire, to be able to show the comparisons between Greeks and Romans, especially for the edification of his readers, that by having lives, that then we can have our lives enriched. Peter Brown talks about how in, in late antiquity, it's the life that's the true classic. So when we reduce uh, classics to texts, we're actually doing something that is not classical that the classic way of thinking about how to be instructed in life is to go back to lives. And that there is a special prominence then among texts that precisely give accounts of lives. Now, in this project of setting up Gregory of Nazianzus and Augustine of Hippo as a comparison, I want to uh, note a different project that is a wonderful book that came out a few years ago by Susanna Elm, of UC Berkeley. Susanna Elm has a major work studying Gregory of Nazianzus and the Emperor Julian. Okay, so Julian is not so affectionately known by Christians as the apostate. But Emperor Julian and Gregory have many kinds of overlapping styles. They were both in Athens uh, at the same time. Uh, Julian apostatized, uh, so he wanted to renounce the Christian faith and to set up pagan sacrifice. He refused to call Christians Christians. He called them the Galileans. He was instituting a new philosophical priestly program in his own person. And then Gregory of Nazianzus is doing something similar. What Susanna Elm does is that she sets them side by side uh, and she wants to show how they have a lot in common. So, uh, so often people will divide Christians from uh, non-Christians in terms of studies of the Roman Empire, and she says it's very fruitful to put these two together, and she's right. Her particular interest is visions of Rome, visions of what the empire should be. In my account of looking at Gregor Nazianzus with a fellow Christian, a Christian to the West, a Latin Christian, Augustine, it's in a sense not about visions of the Roman Empire, but visions of Christ and what life in Christ means. Okay, so what I'm doing is uh, giving a theological contribution based upon these two fathers of the church. Now, in terms of setting up the parallel lives of Gregory and Augustine, I want to give you a sketch concerning Gregory and his influence in the Greek East. He is the most cited authority after the Bible in Byzantine ecclesiastical literature. Okay. He is the most cited authority after the Bible in the Christian literature of the Greek Roman Empire or Byzantine literature. 
Now, he is very, very well-educated and was one of the best Greek orators in histories. Some will call him the Christian Demosthenes. Uh, he became a bishop, but he grew up without baptism and was baptized only after a Mediterranean sea voyage to Greece. He credits his mother's prayers as saving him during the life-threatening storm at sea when he pledged to be baptized. In Greece, he loved the great Basil in a model friendship in Christ. So Basil, who was also from this area of Turkey called Cappadocia, was in Athens, and, and Gregory and Basil lived together there. And, and Basil uh, speaks uh, very glowingly of Ba sorry, Gregory speaks very glowingly of Basil and claims him as his best friend. As a bishop, Gregory says that he refers everything to himself. Okay, so he says this in narration where I'm the kind of person who refers everything to himself. He really did. He's always talking about himself. <laughs> now, when the Benedictines of St. Moore in, in early modern times, divided up the poetry of Gregory of Nazianzus, they allotted 99 of his poems to be on himself. But don't let that fool you. He talks about himself all the time. Right now, and then to think about that, he does this as the theologian. In the Greek tradition, if you were to say or hear the theologian, that's Gregory of Nazianzus. Right, so that in the, this uh, Greek Orthodox tradition, there are particularly three named to be theologians, that you have John the Evangelist, Gregory the Theologian, and Simeon the New Theologian. So this is where in terms of his prominence that as the theologian, that then to think about how he's the most autobiographical of all the Greek fathers, the one who most talks about God so well, most who talks about himself so well. All right, now, in the 99 autobiographical poems, many of them are addressed to Christ or about Christ. Okay, so that in various ways they have, they are prayers or have little prayers embedded, and it's always in relation to Christ. For Gregory of Nazianzus, Christ is the second mixture. The human being is the first mixture, the Adam, Adam in particular is the first mixture, and then Christ is the second mixture. What do I mean by mixture? Well, that you have something heavenly and something earthly. And in terms of the human being, that you have a, a, an immortal soul that is mixed with, well, something of the clay. Sometimes St. Gregory, in his way of putting dichotomies together, will talk about divinity and fat flesh. Okay, so that the human being is these two mixed together. Well, that's the model to help us think about who Christ is. Because Christ is God mixed together with us. Okay, so that you have then the human being as the first mixture and the new mixture, the second mixture, is Christ himself. Okay, so God mixed with us. Uh, now, uh, he knows that he's leaving a legacy as a model for others in Christ. St. Gregory is very conscious that what he's doing is influencing his world, his culture, uh, and that he wants then people to have good examples, particularly examples of good lives. One that he mentions, in fact, he has a, an oration dedicated to St. Cyprian of Carthage. So there's Gregory writing in Greek, going back to the great bishop of Carthage of Latin North Africa, uh, who lived in, uh, who's bishop in the 250s, and he's saying that Cyprian is my favorite martyr. Okay, so you just think about uh, that kind of, of an exemplar. And that he is transforming his Greek culture uh, by, uh, by showing that, that, that Christians can do what the ancient Greeks did, but better. Okay, so in his debate with Julian the Apostate, he has two orations that are invectives. So orations four and five. Uh, he starts them before Julian dies on the battlefield in June of 363, and then he celebrates after Julian has been, uh, ha has been killed, right? Because he sees then the overthrow of paganism 
and how Christians now can lay claim to everything that belongs to the logos, the word. Okay, so everything that is logical of reason or of reason belongs to us who are Christians. Right, so he then sees that Christ, who is the logos enfleshed, is allowing us then to, to see the world in a new way, in faith. Gregory's writing allows us to see the holiness at work. And Gregory uh, especially talks about those who are close to him. So in terms of his parents, the elder Gregory uh, and St. Nona, uh, his, his uh, older sister, St. Gorgonia, his younger brother, St. Cesarius. Right, so they're all saints, and how is it that we know the, know them? Gregory wrote about them, you know, or in terms of the one that he claimed as his best friend, Saint Basil. So he's always talking about these people in terms of lives in Christ, and then his writing also allows us to see those who are anti-models, those who are terrible sinners, especially bishops. Okay, that he he is really upset about many bishops, and he will tell you. Uh, about his problems with all sorts of bishops in terms of heresies, sins, uh, various failures. Right Now that you've heard something about Gregory in that sketch, now think about Augustine of Hippo. He's the most cited authority after the Bible in Latin ecclesiastical literature. Okay, So in the Middle Ages, uh, just think about St. Augustine's prominence. So like when Peter Lombard writes his four books of the sentences in the 12th century, uh, it's sentences or opinions of the fathers, and much of the time, it's St. Augustine. Augustine was well-educated, and he rose to the height of being an imperial orator in Milan, and he became a bishop. But he grew up without baptism and was baptized only after a Mediterranean sea voyage to Italy. In Italy, uh, he loved uh, St. Olympias, his, his uh, best friend, uh, and how they have a model friendship in Christ. The master work in 13 books called The Confessions has the first 10 books about himself and then the last three books about scripture. Augustine knows that he is leaving a legacy as a model for others to Christ, pointing out exemplars and what such, one such important exemplar is, St. Cyprian of Carthage especially when he's having uh, debates with the Donatists, who are also laying claim to the authority of St. Cyprian. Augustine knows that he is transforming Latin culture. Think about the 22 books of the city of God, that he's in debate with all sorts of Romans about the meaning of the world, the meaning of, of, uh, of the empire, the meaning of life. And the founder of the city of God is Christ himself. So now to reorient all of Latin literature around Christ himself, the founder of the city of God. Now, uh, he then uh, is, uh, has an extraordinarily intense and comprehensive vision of Christ. At times, Augustine does use mixture language for Christ. So uh, uh, some of his mixture language is expressed in terms of the imagery of of. Uh, of God marrying humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Uh, uh, his writing allows us to see the holiness in those around him. Think about, about St. Augustine's mother, St. Monica, who is, of course is credited as a, a great saint, and then the one that he credits for spiritual paternity in his life, St. Ambrose of Milan. Augustine's writing also allows us to see in Christ the heresies, sins, and failures of those around him, including the clergy. Now, you see then that these two have parallel lives in Christ. And what I'd like for us to do is to go more deeply into this through these next three respects. The first one is a life of complete conversion and deification. So Christ in a life of complete conversion and deification. And I have some snippets here from first the writings of St. Gregory, since he uh, lived a little bit earlier than uh, St. Augustine and then St. Augustine. St. Gregory, by the way, died around the year 390, perhaps 390, we're not certain on, on the exact date. With St. Augustine, we know that he died on August 28, 430. 
Okay, so Gregory would be an older contemporary to Augustine. We begin with Gregory in terms of a life of complete conversion and deification. In Oration 20, St. Gregory says, And when I gaze on Jesus, even though I may be small in spiritual stature as Zacchaeus was, and hanging on a sycamore tree, putting to death my earthly members and treating this lowly body as a foolish thing, still I shall receive Jesus and hear him say, Today salvation has come to this house, and I shall lay hold of salvation and practice philosophy in a more perfect way, dispensing well what I have gathered ill, either my goods or my teaching. You see how St. Gregory understands his life to be a life like Zacchaeus. And you, in order to appreciate this more fully, you would have to go back to Gregory's Greek. And like the word sycamore uh, means foolish fig. Okay, so like uh, sophomore is a wise fool. So sycamore, a foolish fig. And so, so Zacchaeus then is this, uh, this guy, the short uh, guy, uh, up on a tree, on a sycamore tree, making himself a, uh, like a fool in order to see Jesus. And that's what Gregory understands himself to be, okay? And that uh, he then can be like Zacchaeus, welcoming Jesus into his home, into his life. When he writes a Christmas oration, oration 38, he says, Oh, new mixture, oh, unexpected blending. He who is has come to be. Okay, remember uh, Moses hears in... Exodus 3.14, I am who I am, okay, the being. Well, he who is has come to be. The uncreated one is created. The limitless one is contained. Through the mediation of a rational soul standing between divinity and the coarseness of flesh, he who is rich is a beggar, for he goes begging in my flesh that I might become rich with his Godhead. He who is full has emptied himself. For he emptied himself of his own glory for a while, that I might share in his fullness. How rich is his goodness! What is this mystery all around me? I had a share in the image, and I did not preserve it. He took on a share in my flesh, so that he might both save the image and make the flesh immortal. Okay, so in terms of celebrating Christmas, uh, Christ in our life. Oration 29 so this is one of the theological orations on the Son. Through the medium of the mind, he had dealings with the flesh, being made a human, the God on earth. Since that was blended with God, one was born, the stronger <coughs> one predominating, in order that I might be made God to the same extent that he was made man. Or oration six, uh, and the first oration on peace. I cling to the word alone as servant of the word and would never willingly neglect this possession but on the contrary, honor him and embrace him and take more pleasure in him than all the other things combined that delight the multitude. And I make him the partner of my whole life. Right? So St. Gregory of Nazianzus has this understanding of Christ filling his life. And in one of his poems, poem 74 of the autobiographical collection, he prays twice in that poem, were I not yours, my Christ, this life would be a crime. Were I not yours, my Christ, this life would be a crime. Right, so now you hear in terms of uh, Christ in Gregory's life, let's now think about Christ in Augustine's life. We'll go to Confessions, book three, first. O light of my heart, there was one thing and only one that brought me joy in the exhortation to wisdom, that by its call I was aroused and kindled and set on fire to love and seek and capture and hold fast and strongly cling not to this or that school, but to wisdom itself, wherever it might be. He had just read Cicero's Hortentius as a teenager, and that he was enraptured by wisdom. But Augustine continues on, Only one consideration checked me in my ardent enthusiasm, that the name of Christ did not occur there. Through your mercy, Lord, my tender little heart had drunk in that name, the name of my Savior and your Son, with my mother's milk. And in my deepest heart, I still held on to it. No writing from which that name was missing, even if learned, of literary elegance and truthful, could ever captivate me completely. Right, so think about Augustine saying that he drunk in the name of Christ with his mother's milk. So St. Monica was a faithful Christian who, of course, received the Eucharist. And Augustine realized that even though he wasn't baptized, that he was always enamored with Christ, 
because he received that from his, his mother. Now, in terms of this milk imagery again, if you go to book seven of the Confessions, St. Augustine says, accordingly, I look for a way to gain the strength I needed to enjoy you. He wasn't satisfied with Neoplatonic uh, uh, mystical attempts, okay? And that, that'd be another way to compare August, Augustine and Gregory is through the philosophical appropriations. So especially Neoplatonism and Stoicism, various, various configurations of philosophy. But I did not find it until I embraced the mediator between God and humankind, the man Christ Jesus, who is also God, supreme over all things and blessed forever. Not yet had I embraced him, though he called out proclaiming, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nor had I known him as the food, which, though I was not yet strong enough to eat it, he had mingled with our flesh. For the word became flesh, so that your wisdom, through whom you created all things, might become for us the milk adapted to our infancy. Not yet was I humble enough to grasp the humble Jesus as my God, nor did I know what was his weakness what his weakness had to teach. Your word, the eternal truth, who towers over the higher spheres of your creation, raises up to himself those creatures who bow before him. But in these lower regions, he has built himself a humble dwelling from our clay and used it to cast down from their pretentious selves those who do not bow before him and make a bridge to bring them to himself. He heals their soul and pride and nourishes their love that they may not wander even further away through self-confidence, but rather weaken, as they see before their feet the Godhead grown weak by sharing our garments of skin and wearily fling themselves down upon him so that he may arise and lift them up. Right, so St. Augustine here understands that in the incarnation, God made himself weak, made himself our milk, because we he because God knows that we're not ready for strong meat, so that we need the milk. We are we are infants, and then He has that image of how God makes makes Himself our way in the incarnation. I am the way and the truth and life, and so that you walk on the way, because in terms of pride and humility, that we need to go down to humble ourselves if we are to be raised up. Listen to what St. Augustine says in Sermon 23b. And this is one of the newly discovered sermons by Dobo, Francois Dobo. So it's in that collection. St. Augustine preaches, we carry mortality about with us. We endure infirmity. We look forward to divinity. For God wishes not only to vivify, but also to deify us. When would human infirmity ever have dared to hope for this unless divine truth had promised it? But divine truth did promise this, as we have said, and that we are going to be gods. Not only did it promise it this, not only did it promise this, and because it made the promise, it is of course true, because such a faithful maker of promises does not deceive, and such an omnipotent giver is not prevented from fulfilling what he has promised. Still, it was not enough for our God to promise us divinity in himself, unless he also took on our infirmity. As though to say, do you want to know how much I love you? How certain you ought to be that I'm going to give you my divine reality? I took to myself your mortal reality. St. Augustine continues, we mustn't find it incredible, brothers and sisters, that human beings become gods. That is, that those who were human beings become gods. More incredible still is that is what has already been bestowed on us that one who was God should become a human being. And indeed, we believe that that has already happened while we wait for the other thing to happen in the future. The Son of God became a Son of Man in order to make sons of men into sons of God. Sometimes people think that deification is some esoteric Greek idea. It's, it's Christian. And we see this both in the Latin West and the Greek East. Okay, so Father David McConey is a, a leader in the world in showing us St. Augustine's theology of deification. And I highly recommend his book, The One Christ, from Catholic University of America Press and other works. Because sometimes people just don't realize Augustine's wonderful theology of deification. 
Now, the next step I'd like for us to consider is Christ in Scripture. So this is where, in terms of thinking about life, that Scripture and life go together. And again, we'll begin with St. Gregory. Gregory prays in poem 19 within the autobiographical collection. There are three tax collectors of great fame in your books. The great Matthew, the one pouring a libation of tears in the temple, and Zacchaeus, in addition to them. May I myself be the fourth. Moreover, there are three paralytics, one bedridden, one at the fountain, and she whom a spirit bound. May I myself be the fourth. Finally, three saw in you the light after death, for you so commanded, the daughter of the magistrate, the child of the widow, and from the tomb half-consumed Lazarus. May I myself be the fourth. Do you see how St. Gregory sees himself in the scriptures and that he's basically next in line? Okay, here I am, Jesus. I'm next in line. You know, heal me. Or from his 50th poem in the autobiographical collection, such is the law of gentle Christ, but command that I be unharmed at long last. Your word is my cure. A new Lazarus among the dead am I, but shout, rise, and let the corpse live through your words. A new paralytic am I, bedridden, but shout, you are of solid limb, and I will go. Bearing my bed lifted high from your tasseled hem, I steal a cure with my hands, but check the flow of blood swiftly from my wasted flesh. Right, so you just have that sense of St. Gregory's vividness of seeing Christ in the scripture, touching him. Now go to St. Augustine, and this passage is from his long work against Faustus. Faustus was the Manichaean bishop uh, that we encounter in the Confessions. And so St. Augustine sets up this work where he allows Faustus to speak, and then Augustine answers him. And there's a debate about scripture. So the Manichaeans discard the Old Testament, Okay, they are dualists, and one of the things that they do concerning Scripture is that they don't want the Old Testament. And so St. Augustine is defending the Bible. Augustine says, Those who find no delight in these holy scenes and the holy Scriptures turn to myths because of their inability to put up with sound teaching. And those myths, of course, attract childish souls at any age of the body in various delightful ways. But let us, who are now the body of Christ, recognize in the psalm our own voice, and say to him, the unjust have told me of delights, but they are not like your law, O Lord. The unjust have told me of delights, but they are not like your law, O Lord. Now, St. Augustine then gives a praise for that law, the scriptures. As I make my way and gasp in that sweat coming from our human condemnation, Christ meets and refreshes me everywhere in those books, everywhere in those scriptures, whether openly or in a hidden manner. He sets a fire for me, the desire to find him as a result of some difficulty in discovering him so that I may eagerly absorb what I find and hold it for my salvation, hidden within the marrow of my bones. Michael Cameron, a leading Augustinian scholar in the United States who teaches at the University of Portland, has a wonderful book from Oxford University Press titled, Christ Meets Me Everywhere. So it's showing how Augustine finds Christ in scripture, you know, in every page of scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament that the Manichaeans want to discard, Christ meets and refreshes me everywhere in those books. Okay, so that's where, in terms of having that vivid sense of the power of the word in life, the power that, that leaps, off of, leaps off from the pages of sacred scripture. You know, for the word of God is living and effective. Now, the final step before we have our conclusion is Christ in a ministerial life service to others. So both Gregory of Nazianzus and Augustine of Hippo are bishops. And when we first look at Gregory, I thought it'd be good for us to go to the opening and the closing of his oration 14, which is St. Gregory's oration on the love of the poor. 
So listen to how St. Gregory is ministering to others in Christ. Brothers and sisters, poor with me, for all of us are beggars and needy of divine grace, even if one of us may seem to have more than others when measured on a small scale. Accept my words on love of the poor, not in a mean spirit, but generously, that you may be rich in God's kingdom. And pray that we may bestow these words on you richly and nourish your souls with our discourse, breaking spiritual bread for the poor. Perhaps we may feed many thousands in a deserted place with a few loaves and leave them satisfied as Jesus did, who is the true bread and source of true life. So what is St. Gregory doing here? He's saying that uh, precisely in giving an oration that is on love of the poor to motivate people to feed the hungry, that his, um, that what he has to offer is like the five barley loaves, okay? That he has, he has just a little bit, but with the prayers of the people who are gathered there, perhaps God will multiply what he is saying and allow everybody to be fed richly by his sermon so that they then can go out and feed richly all of the poor, all those who are in need. Okay, if you see then how, how he's, he's thinking about the miraculous feeding of the, of the thousands uh, and then applying this, uh, applying this to his sermon. So if you go to the end of Oration 14, St. Gregory says, If you believe me at all, then, servants and brothers and sisters and fellow heirs of Christ, let us take care of Christ while there is still time. Let us minister to Christ's needs. Let us give Christ nourishment. Let us clothe Christ. Let us gather Christ in. Let us show Christ honor, not just at our tables, as some do, nor just with ointment like Mary, nor just with a tomb like Joseph of Arimathea, or just with the things needed for burial, like that half-hearted lover of Christ, Nicodemus, nor just with gold and frankincense and myrrh, like the magi who came to him before all the rest. But since the Lord of all things desires mercy and not sacrifice, and since a compassionate heart is worth more than tens of thousands of fat lambs, let us give this gift to him through the needy, who today are cast down on the ground, so that when we are all released from this place, they may receive us into the eternal tabernacle in Christ himself, who is our Lord, to whom be glory for all the ages. Amen. Right, so St. Gregory then says how if you love the poor, love Christ in the poor, you are doing something more than some of these various characters in the gospel. You are able to encounter Christ and then know that, that you can be welcomed into heaven to into Christ himself right now from that example of Christ in St. Gregory's ministerial life we turn to St. Augustine and the first example is from the end of book 10 of the confessions so I said to you that St. Augustine in his 13 books divides them up so that the first 10 refer to himself and then the next three refer to scripture this is the end of book 10, where he, uh, he has done a lot of work concerning memory. And then he thinks about, about uh, what his life is meant to be. He says, filled with terror by my sins and my load of misery, I had been turning over in my mind a plan to flee into solitude. But you forbade me and strengthened me by your words. To this end, Christ died for all. You reminded me that they who are alive may live not for themselves, but for him who died for them. See then, Lord, I cast my care upon you that I may live, and I will contemplate the wonders you have revealed. You know how stupid and weak I am. Teach me and heal me. Your only Son, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, has redeemed me with his blood. Let not the proud disparage me, for I am mindful of my ransom. I eat it, I drink it, I dispense it to others. And as a poor man, I long to be filled with it among those who are fed and feasted. And then do those who seek him praise the Lord. 
So St. Augustine, in a sense, was tempted to run off and become a hermit. But instead, he found that Christ wanted him to live his life completely for Christ, and then to do this as a minister. So he writes this as a bishop. St. Augustine was baptized in the year 387, and soon after becoming the sole bishop of Hippo, uh, he started writing his confessions. So he wrote this from 397 to 400 or 401. And so that he is, is writing now as a bishop, and, and he knows that he has that ransom who is Christ himself, who, who gives himself as food. And as a bishop then, he is able to minister that food to others, and that he, he feasts on that food. Another example of St. Augustine's ministerial life and service to others would be from Sermon 46, where he talks about his duty as a bishop, as a preacher. And he calls to mind how Christ is the judge, and he will have to give an account of his ministry to Christ. So he says, remember, we must all present ourselves before this judgment seat of Christ. And then listen to what St. Augustine is willing to do I shall recall the straying. I shall seek the lost. Whether they wish it or not, I shall do it. And should the brambles of the forest tear at me when I seek them, I shall force myself through all straits. I shall pull down all hedges. So far as the God whom I fear grants me the strength, I shall search everywhere. I shall recall the straying. I shall seek after those on the verge of being lost. If you do not want me to suffer, do not stray. Do not become lost. Now, my last example of St. Augustine's ministerial service in Christ is focusing on one of his favorite scripture passages. It's from Matthew 25, 31 to 46. And so he quotes the line, Whenever you did it for one of the least of mine, you did it for me. St. Augustine preaches, Christ has received what you have given, It has been received by the one who gave you the means to give it. Again, it's about giving to the poor. It has been received by the one who at the end will give you himself. I mean this too, brothers and sisters, is something I have sometimes reminded you of, something which I confess that in God's scriptures, this has moved me the most. That Christ tells us in the scriptures Whatever you did for one of the least of mine, you did it for me. St. Augustine then understands the reality of that mystery and then how we are called to be of service to Christ, hidden in the poor. All right, so now just backing up in terms of, of this exercise of looking at Christ in the lives and teachings of Gregory of Nazianzus and Augustine of Hippo. Uh, after thinking about some preliminary matters of why do this sort of thing, I wanted us to consider how they really could be considered parallel lives in that sense of Plutarch uh, for what he was doing in the Roman Empire. And then to be able to see how uh, that the two of them, Gregory and Augustine, can be compared in all sorts of ways. And I wanted us especially to consider how they have a complete conversion and deification in Christ and that that they give complementary ways of understanding what conversion and deification would mean for Christians. And then their great love for Christ in Scripture, and that they're able also to bring this love to others, precisely as preachers, as writers, and then especially in terms of that ministerial service, their particular care uh, for all those in special need. All right, so, uh, so I thank you for your attention, and now we have some time for questions and answers and comments. Father? Could you perhaps comment on this mode of doing, this, uh, doing theology very personally and comparing and contrasting that with uh, Thomas Aquinas, who seems to be kind of opposite? That's a great question. So, yes, uh, 
So when I teach the introduction to theology at the Dominican House of Studies, sometimes I will contrast Gregory of Nazianzus and Thomas Aquinas precisely in terms of styles of theology. Yves Congar, in an essay I think called Servant of the Truth, talks about St. Thomas in terms of the Eucharistic monstrance and the priest hidden uh, behind the Eucharistic monstrance. So that way Christ, uh, Christ shines out uh, because St. Thomas has an economy of expression oftentimes simply to be able to direct people's attention to that mystery. Well, for both St. Gregory and St. Augustine, they, uh, in different ways, want to show how Christ is in life, and particularly, they talk about themselves. And, and so today, sometimes people will set up the contrast between talking about yourself and talking about God. It's just that in these two examples of doctors of the church who are extraordinarily influential in their respective Greek and Latin traditions, they're able to combine it in a really successful way. Okay, so some people are more attracted to St. Thomas's approach, and other people are more attracted to the approaches of St. Gregory and St. Augustine. Yes? Um, a continuation of my question. Do you, do, you, uh, do you find that's more like that more like bishops who are like doctors of the church tend to be like that versus people who are like monks or abbots or more like personal like versus people who have like people who they oversee. Right. Okay, so that's a wonderful question. So in terms of, uh, is it especially bishops? Okay, so St. Thomas was not a bishop. Uh, he was a preacher, a priest, but not a bishop. Um, so uh, some bishops, yes, uh, that's true. Um, there are various examples of those who are not bishops who will also speak a lot about their experience uh, so within the Greek tradition, one example would be St. Simeon, the new theologian. So he, he has a lot in terms of his own spiritual experience. Um, you can think about various mystics. Uh, so in terms of the, the Western tradition, uh, Julian of Norwich uh, will, will, uh, will talk about what she, uh, what she experiences. You know, uh, Catherine of Siena will be in a dialogue with God. And you just you have different approaches. So, uh, so sometimes bishops may be more likely to do this, but but I also see this in terms of other ways of configuring it. Yeah. Yes. So you said that St. Gregory wrote about himself well, so that he could like write it to talk off well. Could you talk about like I guess how he made that like transition? Because I yep. can see where you can kind of get caught in one like camp or the other. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so um, because God has made himself one of us, and for St. Gregory, the incarnation is not some distant reality, but God took up my life. So this is where, in terms of fighting in Epistle 101, to, uh, Epistle 101 is written to the priest Caldonius. It's within what's called the Apollinarian Controversy. The Apollinarians did not think that the word took on a rational mind, a rational soul. And so what Gregory does in terms of talking about God is that he, uh, and about life is that that which is not assumed is not healed. That which is not assumed is not healed. And he says that God took up my mind. He took up my life. So that's where, especially in terms of the contrast between God and us, that Jesus Christ is precisely that intersection where you have God living a human life. And he does this uh, so that way our lives may be in him so that we may have the way back to God. Right? So that, that's where, in terms of just thinking about the totality of this, and, and that they do this uh, artfully, skillfully, beautifully, in all sorts of ways that can help us think about how, oh yeah, when we go to Jesus, we have God living our life. Yes? Yes, I wonder if you could say something about the similarities and differences between the two in the doctrine of how deification occurs, particularly given the difference in their respective anthropologies about what you 
haven't said much. That's right. Thank you. All right. So uh, in terms of just a little bit of background, St. Greg of Nazianzus is the one who coined the Greek term theosis or theosis, right? So they had an apo prefix before, but he's the one who coins it. And there are many people today who, rather than saying deification or divinization, would like to go back to this particular Greek term that we first encounter, I think it's in Oration 4, against Julian. Right? So what Gregory often does in this is that he wants to see in terms of uh, God's descent and our ascent. So it's that deification is the, uh, is the other side of the coin of incarnation. So incarnation and deification would be like a coin with two sides. So in terms of God becoming man and then man becoming God, or however you want to express it. Right, so uh, now St. Gregory also will have a special emphasis on the Holy Spirit. So if you go to Oration 31, the, the fifth and last of the theological orations, that he sees the Holy Spirit as God and consubstantial with the Father and the Son, uh, and that you see this, that the Holy Spirit is deifying us, okay, because he's God. It's an argument that was used earlier in the fourth century about the Son's full divinity, because that, because only God deifies, and so you need that the Son then uh, is to be able to uh, to deify us because He's fully God and the Holy Spirit now too that we understand the Holy Spirit to be fully God deifying us. So then, in terms of just going back to the anthropology of, of Gregory, again he likes this mixture language a great deal, and so. Uh, within the anthropology that the soul has uh, prominence over the body, that the soul is um, especially imaging God. But for Gregory, and this is going to be di a difference with Augustine, the soul is especially mirroring the Son, Christ. Okay, because in terms of being made to the image of God, well, who's the image? That's the Son. So Colossians chapter 1 uh, Christ is the image of the invisible God. So that'd be a significant difference because when we get to Augustine, the De Trinitate, in a sense, the, the driving force of the De Trinitate, the 15 books on the Trinity, is that St. Augustine sees that the soul is made to the image of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, so with St. Augustine, like St. Gregory, the soul has a primacy, but the soul is made to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so that'd be a significant difference. And it's interesting then that Gregory is more Christological uh, and Augustine is more Trinitarian when speaking of the soul. Okay, so sometimes that isn't, isn't said because sometimes people think the West is more Christological and the East is more Trinitarian. But actually this would challenge that when you look at, uh, at theological anthropologies of Gregory and Augustine. And then in terms of... of um, uh, of thinking about the incarnation, St. Augustine, in his letter to Volusian, who was a pagan intellectual, who did, uh, he was baptized before he died. Uh, but uh, Augustine, in that letter, speaks about the mixture language again. And he does this in a way that can make you think of what Gregory was doing not too much earlier. And that the mixture of the soul and the body helps us to think about the mixture of the word becoming flesh. Okay, so, uh, and I mentioned how sometimes St. Augustine will use, say, the marital imagery of mixing, of divinity and uh, uh, marrying humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So, so there in terms of, of thinking about the incarnation and then with, with the deification, uh, uh, um, Augustine will... Uh, we'll use that Psalm 82, I say you are gods, and he'll especially emphasize love. Okay, so in terms of you become what you love, in, in, some, in one of his sermons, or more than one of his sermons, he'll talk about how uh, if you love that which is of earth, you become earthly. If you love God, you become godly. You become what you love. So, uh, so there are various ways then to be able to compare, contrast Gregory and Augustine in terms of anthropologies and deifications, and then always in terms of 
of deifications. It's dependent upon your vision of God. Okay? Because pagans, let's face it, have forms of deification, and they have different gods. Okay? So this is where in terms of of, of that, uh, that someone's deification is dependent upon what that person thinks God is. Okay? And for Christians, then, we can have that common understanding because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And both St. Gregory and St. Augustine were, uh, were masterful in presenting, uh, image, presenting theologies of the Trinity that, um, that elicit our worship of God. Okay, so they're, they're very clear about that this is not some, simply some academic exercise, but it's about worshiping God in life. Yep. How do we keep this distinct from, say, like, the Latter-day Saints view? Oh, right. You know, divinization. Right. Because it could sound, yep. you know, and I've seen Mormon apologists yep, that's right. try to appropriate right. Christian theology on deification, especially from the East. Right. Yes. So, first off, think, uh, Rome has said that the baptism of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not a Christian baptism. And uh, a reason given is that even though they speak of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they do not have the same God. Okay, so that they have, in terms of, it's that radical, in terms of uh, that Rome does not think that Mormons are Christians, properly speaking. So if you then uh, explore their understanding of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you'll see, oh no, that is not the one God of Christian revelation. So if it's not the one God of Christian revelation, then the deification that they, uh, that they espouse is going to be a false deification. And then in terms of a plurality, a plurality of gods, okay, so I don't want to get into uh, various uh, Mormon claims, uh, but you can uh, read their literature and then just think about how, uh, how the Catholic Church says that they, are, they do not have a Christian baptism uh, because of especially their understanding of who God is. Yes? Yeah, I was just going to ask about the difference between Western Christianity and Eastern, uh, especially Orthodox Christianity, or at least perceived difference on deification becoming like God. Like, why do you think we have this... Why do, why do people find it weird to talk about becoming God in, in like, I don't know, Protestant and Catholic... Uh, circles. At least, maybe that's not true, but in my experience, no. like, really? So we become God? Like, I can't be right. Right. You know, so. Well, and then also, just in terms of theological scholarship, Paul Gaverlich, uh, who is the founding president of the International Orthodox Theological Association, has a new article in Modern Theology that says that, uh, that among the Orthodox, it wasn't until the work of Ivan Popov in the beginning of the 20th century that you had deification as a way of describing all of orthodox theology and spirituality. That there was something that was lost in terms of modern times, and that it was a revival. And then various scholars have been looking at polemics, especially from 19th century German scholarship, that made certain dichotomies very set. And so that way, people then, when they went back to the fathers, understood this from various kinds of dichotomies uh, you know, that the East is mystical, the West is rational, all these things. And then people are, are reading these texts for themselves and saying, well, actually, uh, the East has a refined scholasticism that develops, and the West has all sorts of mystical things. You know, or we're in terms of deification that, that actually there are lots of different kinds of deification theologies in all sorts of ways. And then to be able to go back and see this for yourself uh, and in a sense to let go of some stereotypes and some dichotomies and just continue to read and read and read. Um, and then you find, oh, okay, that's actually not what I was told. Uh, so, so that can be very helpful just to see that there are different paradigms and scholarship in terms of what we accept to be the case. And then, uh, and then to to go back and, and then find, oh, okay, this is what actually it was said. Uh, it seems like the Scholat, like St. Thomas, doesn't use a whole bunch of 
blending mixture language. Oh, no. You know, like it's much more about the union. Yep. Like is the, and I don't really, I don't know the Greek and Latin terms there, but what what why is the development away from that language? Great. Okay, so, and some will even say, well, the catechism uh, condemns mixture language. What the catechism of the Catholic Church does is it condemns confused mixtures. And the reason is, especially, that at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, uh, there was a solemn, in the solemn definition, that you have uh, a condemnation of two Greek terms, synchesis, which is the Greek word for confusion. Everybody hates confusion. All right, so nobody, nobody was supporting confusion. But a particular <laughs> Greek word, krasis, was allied with synchesis. Okay? They did not use the Greek word mixus, where we get our word mixture. All right? So in terms of the incarnation, one should not use synchesis. Nobody was tempted to use synchesis. But various people did say krasis. Gregor Nazianzus himself will often compare krasis and mixus. All right. Um, so then, in terms of the Greek term, henesis, or in English you can say henosis, is the word for union. But if you go, and so some people say, well, if you just say union, it all settles, it settles everything. You could go to the Fifth Ecumenical Council, which is Constantinople II in 553, and one of the anathemas is precisely, there's a variety of misinterpreting henesis. Okay, so it goes all the different ways that they want to uh, set up to anathematize because of henesis. All right, so, so union is not the uh, is not the cure all for this. And in fact, what does union mean? It means that there's one from a multiplicity, and all sorts of peoples in antiquity, influenced by uh, say Aristotelian, Stoic, Neoplatonic philosophies and various forms seen in various philosophers will talk about mixtures in various ways. Okay, so, so, it, so you could use it poetically, you could use it scientifically or exactly, but there are all sorts of ways of doing this. But Chalcedon then um, said that particular types of this would be condemned, right? So that influenced both the Greek tradition and the Latin tradition. And so St. Thomas, of course, does not want mixture uh, because it can sound like confusion. Okay, so, so all sorts of people will, will then condemn it. But actually, uh, you'll still find remnants of this, like St. Gregory the Great still will have some mixture terminology. And if you see that union itself is actually within the language of mixture, that's one possible. So mixture can be understood in terms of a broad category or in terms of a particular kind of it, all right? But the catechism uh, uh, refutes confused mixture, okay? So that, I think that's the uh, most important part of it, yep. Um, if I can ask a second question. Sure. Uh, I, I was gonna ask if you, if you think it's true that there's like a symmetry between, um, so God becomes man and we say that Christ is fully man. Like we, in no way is Christ not a man. Yeah. Whereas oftentimes people talk about theosis, talk about deification, they say, oh, we become God, but like not really in the way that Christ is God, right? It's like yeah. kind of like we participate in God or we right. share in God. Yeah. So would you say that there's kind of an asymmetry in the, between those in that way? Okay, so going back to Gregory of Nazianzus again, Gregory says there's only one, uh, only God is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And if a creature uh, pretends to be that, properly speaking, that's blasphemy. All right, so St. Gregory of Nazianzus, who has all of this uh, language about deification, he will make it clear, hey, <laughs> God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. No more. That's the one God. So, so that's where, in terms of Gregory himself, will not want us to, be, to think of ourselves as God, as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each one of them is God. All right, so that's an important qualification. And the, another important qualification, I think, is just in terms of the practices of both Greek and Latin traditions, the more you are deified, the more you worship God. Okay, so just in terms of the more deified you are, the more you receive God's grace and transformed in, uh, to be more like God, the more you thank and praise God. Okay, now, so that's extremely important. The other part of it too that I want to emphasize is that 
you yourself are worthy of honor, a great honor. Okay, so that's why in terms of the Greek and Latin traditions that we venerate the saints, we don't pretend that they're God, but we do hold them up, you know, in terms of images and prayers and, and intercessions. And, and this is something different from some, uh, some Christian traditions that are very uncomfortable about images and prayers of the saints, etc. Um, and then you think about how, well, that, well, in terms of deification, the more we are deified, the more we worship God, and also the more that we may be honored, okay? And then to be able to see God at work in us through that. 